Carol Hooven teaches in and co-directs the undergraduate program in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. Carol's work's been featured in Time, Slate, The Boston Globe, The Daily Telegraph, New York Post, Stylist Magazine, The BBC, and Talk Radio Europe. She was a featured guest last month on the Joe Rogan podcast, promoting her brand new book, T, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us, which is also the basis of our chat today. I'm Gregory Day, you're listening to an ad-free episode of the Portland Podcast with today's special guest, Carol Hooven. I just uh, finished your book and listened to Joe Rogan chats. Oh, you actually read the book? Yes, you made the science very palatable. Thank you. Rogan did not read read the book or even uh, look at the questions that my publicist sent or, you know, things that I would be happy to talk about. <laughs> so it was a little challenging and there were a lot, a lot of tears, but... Uh... There really were. I was expecting some tissues, uh, Jamie, to bring out some tissues there at the, right at the end. <laughs> No, it was intense. It really was intense. Really I don't know if was. you heard that Andrew Sullivan. Did you hear? You didn't happen to hear Andrew Sullivan's podcast? I haven't. No. So that just came out, but it was completely different. I mean, I, yes, I teared up one time talking about gay boys who who um, have trouble with puberty and how awful it is for a lot of gay boys. But how much he loved learning that he was gay in adolescence and um, embraced it. And that was so wonderful. And I got all teary about it. But anyway, Sullivan, you know, read the book and had pointed engaging questions and it was entirely (laughs) different. Well, you're the lady that got Joe Rogan to tear up three times. It's never been done before. A lot. No, I think it was even more because, no, it was an, because I'm emotional, he's emotional. And I think we could see it in each other and then, just picked up on it on each other's emotionality and it got kind of weird but whatever it's fine (laughs) the book begins with you in the bush and you're collecting urine and you're on a a science mission and what i found fascinating was uh, lawrence summer's studies that uh, it gave us the the information that uh, male aptitude is is a lot more variable than uh, females that was fascinating reading yeah, so he was correct. He was he, he had been trying to understand the science that can help to explain the differences in representation in stem fields where uh, in certain stem fields there's a you know big disparity in that they're heavily male biased. So he that is one of the potential explanations that he was looking at was this um, difference in disparity at the high sorry differences in aptitudes and representation also at the high end and low ends. So you have more men. And this is true for a huge variety of uh, physical and psychological traits that you and cognitive abilities that you'll have more men who are really more males who are really struggling, but also more males who are at the extreme high ends of aptitude in uh, some areas. Yeah, so he offered that up as one hypothesis. He also addressed discrimination and just differences in interest and desires for certain kind of lifestyle and that there might be sex differences in interests and um, desire, say, to stay home with your kids and that that might contribute too. But he really got in hot water as the president of Harvard for suggesting that there might be some biological contribution 
to a real problem that he really was trying to solve the problem by exploring all reasonable hypotheses. And I applauded him for doing that at the time. And I think that we should be able to talk about science and what the implication, you know, be very careful about what the implications are, but we need to have those discussions. We do. And uh, chapter two was a bit difficult to read as uh, as a someone with testicles uh castration the castrati oh, right. i was like wait what's chapter two what's chapter two <laughs> right no and i felt that when i was writing it and i yeah i didn't realize there was such a rich history of castration in italy and uh, china especially my goodness this was absolutely fascinating to me and uh, how it affects the body and the vocal cords this is a gripping reading absolutely fascinating fascinating. Was it difficult to find out that information? Yeah, that's interesting what you said about not being aware of the richness of that history. That was the same experience for me, even though I've been teaching in this area for quite some time. I really was never super motivated to get into the history because I was always just really turned on by this, you know, by the science, but the history is fascinating. And yes, it was difficult. I had to spend a significant amount of time looking for these original sources for testimonials from that um, last surviving uh, eunuch. And I also had recently been to Beijing and toured the, Oh God, now I can't remember the Imperial Palace and um, I can't even remember. <laughs> so, and there was in Beijing, we decided not to go at the time, but I wish I had visited a, the uh, Castration Museum there, uh, or sorry, I'm not sure if it's called the Castration Museum or the Eunuch Museum, but that was outside of Beijing. So there is a deep, deep history and it is fascinating because it shows how since, you know, ancient China, um, we have, and even before that, uh, we have understood that the testicles, functioning testicles are necessary for the expression of typically masculine traits in the body and in behavior. And we've known that in animals and in humans. And of course, there's still castration goes on in humans in various places in the world, but also because people need to shut off uh, testosterone production for various medical conditions. Also, it happens, um, people do this voluntarily, of course, when they transition uh, from male to female in transgender people. So there's lots of also modern evidence on the effects of castration. Um, but what you're referring to is what happens if you castrate people prior to puberty and you inhibit the effects of testosterone during puberty, then yeah, you prevent right. the deepening of the voice mm -hmm. and um, along with other male uh, typical traits. So yeah, that was challenging. Leading to them being taller. So that's interesting. And that's because, uh, so for bone growth during puberty, estrogen is the main hormone in both males and females that contributes contributes to the lengthening of the long bones. Mm -hmm. And in men, most of the testosterone that acts um, on the growth plates in the bones is converted by this enzyme aromatase into estrogen. And then estrogen acts on the uh, growth plates to lengthen the bones. But then what's interesting is when uh, testosterone in males and estrogen in females sort of gets to a high level and plateaus towards the end of puberty, those same hormones cause a closure of the growth plate so that they can no longer grow, so that the long bones stop growing. So if you don't go through, 
so if you don't go through that puberty and you don't have this increase in testosterone and estrogen, which you would prevent by castration, you just continue that long, that period of childhood growth, which is mainly under the um, governed by growth hormone. So you have this long period of slow growth, which is why you can get these people like the eunuchs um, had typically had long arms and legs and had this kind of gangly appearance because they had this really, you know, elongated period of kind of what you could call childhood growth. So sad. So sad. Yeah, it's very touching reading about, uh, you know, a, a student of yours, Jenny, who had a, a variation, a, a didn't have a uterus, no period, no body hair, BO, acne. <laughs> That's right. But as feminine as they come. And she was very happy, I have to say, with her variation. She was totally, felt totally comfortable and accepting. Moving on, uh, what is it, Shalanda Basin Studies, uh, T-Builds Muscle, even yeah. without weight training. Well, because think about it, not all men lift weights, right? But they right. have vastly more muscle than women on, you know, and that's on average. And that's almost, there are very few exceptions to that. Men have, that's what testosterone does. And you don't have to go to the gym to get it. That's just the, the hormone causes the energy that you take in to be distributed in different ways to promote uh, different reproductive strategies. So having larger muscles is a in essence, a reproductive part of a male reproductive strategy for mate competition. So your energy is going to be biased towards muscle rather than fat. So females need more fat because we have to draw on our energy reserves for successful reproduction. And that's obviously gestation and lactation. And that's what those hormones do is cause energy to be allocated in very different ways in terms of our physical and behavioral uh, traits. And I just have to pause on the testosterone makes boy brains. That's basically true. <laughs> it's a little bit overstated because I, you know, there aren't always two totally different kinds of brains. It does bias. Uh, it does act in the brain to bias behavior in masculine or feminine ways. Uh, it's a kind of a prov provocative chapter title there. So. <laughs> also a provocative book that you referenced damon fairless's book mad blood stirring the inner lives of violent men i'm curious about this book you read it can you touch on that on that book and because you reference this quite a bit towards the end of uh, towards the end of t yeah because i think there weren't really very many other resources for me to get into the mind of a man who doesn't represent all men, that is for sure. He's rather extreme and pretty macho. Yeah, he, he's he but he just really describes he tries he describes his own struggles with um, physical aggression, how he feels what it feels like to compete for status, feel threatened, how he responds to that, how he derives pleasure from or has de derived pleasure from responding to, um, say, status challenges or threats with physical aggression. And yeah. then the part that I excerpted was a graphic description of his not literally knocking heads with some, you know, some stranger in a train who he just should have left alone, right? But he challenged him and they came to blows. And that's just very common among men. And it's not common among women. Yeah, like the stags, he went head to head. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. And obviously, that's the parallel I was drawing that we are animals that males 
do have a bias towards physical aggression in a way that females don't. That doesn't mean that females are not physically aggressive. It's just that the bar for the kind of environmental stimulus that's going to provoke that is lower for males. And that really seems to be a product of testosterone, of course, in conjunction with culture, because you don't see that expressed to that extent everywhere. Like I said in the book, you wouldn't see that in a train uh, in Singapore because they have very different culture That's and right. very different laws. And, you know, we may have different natures, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be expressed the same way uh, in every environment. Environment has a huge effect on how we express ourselves. And I really tried to illustrate that clearly um, in the book. You interviewed those who were transitioning too, and uh, Griffin Hansbury gave a, a testimonial <laughs> yeah. which I could really identify with. Would you like to touch oh, on really? that? Yes. Can you say why you identified with it? Well, <laughs> you brought it up. Yeah. Well, you know, yoga pants, or I'm a big fan of yoga pants, and apparently so <laughs> is Griffin. Yeah. Yeah. That, so what you're talking about is the, introduction to my chapter on how what we can learn from the effects of testosterone in gender transitions. So one of my fantasies as a woman is that I would be able to uh, take male levels of testosterone, but I don't want to have male physical traits. So I cannot do that. Um, I don't want to grow a beard and I don't want to mm -hmm. have a deep voice or have a lot of acne or muscle, yeah. but I would like to know uh, if I could have some idea about what it is like to go through the world as a man uh, looking male, but m looking like a man, but also feeling like one. And, and how would I change if that were the case? So the best I could do is one thing I could do is talk to people who actually did that, who felt, say, take a um, natal female who felt that she should be a man or, in fact, is a man and took testosterone to transition um, as part of a gender transition. Not all trans people obviously take uh, cross-sex hormones, but I talked to people who did. And I found that really, really powerful because you can have someone who's a natal female describing what it's like to go through the world as a female and then how that changes when um, that person took male levels of testosterone. So Griffin Hansberry was one of those people. He's not somebody I talked to. He had given an interview to an uh, another outlet. And I, I thought he did a fantastic job of describing how he went from being a lesbian who felt edgy and cool um, when they were, I'll just say they were attracted to females as a lesbian, then taking male levels of testosterone and feeling like, wow, I'm objectifying women. I'm having this kind of really different experience in terms of my sexual attraction to women. It's really much more about bodies now than it was before. And I feel like a jerk. And I, yeah, no, I find that interesting because I don't know how men, if men feel like jerks because of their, that part of their nature. We do. Okay. So I think that's worth bringing out and discussing because I don't know that you should feel like a jerk. I know as a woman, I could say, oh, you know, he's objectifying me or men are objectifying me. And that feels insulting. But I think 
you have to have compassion once you read about these experiences and you talk to good men who have those feelings and feel bad about them. I do think the understanding where men are coming from and what their experiences are like and how challenging it is for them in a way that women are very judgmental about, probably for good reason, but we also need to understand what it's like and listen. Um, with some, I do think there needs to be compassion and understanding there, and I think our eyes would open. Uh, that doesn't mean that we ever need to accept behavior, you know, that is dangerous or harassing or bothersome. Yeah, and you make a point of that. You make a point of that. You know, we don't. Uh, behavior is something different. Yes, but having feelings is totally fine. The way that you act on them is what we need to yes, discuss and what yes. we need to do something about. But I think behavior will improve, in general, when people have a deeper understanding of what motivates it in people who are different from them. And uh, yes, yeah, Stella, I believe you did speak to Stella, who detransitioned. They got a mood boost from tea. Now, this was yes. an individual who transitioned and then transitioned back. Yes. And they went through quite the arc in their lives emotionally and physically. I, I have not read anything quite like that before. And I think their experience is quite unique. That must have been very eye-opening. It's actually not unique. Um, there are... It's, you're not supposed to uh, talk about detransitioners, but uh, really, it's really, yeah, it's. Um, you don't hear about it very often. I haven't. Right, because people who do talk about the existence of detransitioners and describe their experiences are sometimes labeled as transphobic. Right, because right. It seems to be spreading the idea that there's something wrong with transitioning, but that's really not the case. But it, you know. Most people who transition are very happy with their transitions. There's a small minority of people who are not. And from my point of view, as someone who's interested in the effects of testosterone, talking to her was crucial and absolutely fascinating because she started as a natal female and then she um, transitioned and uh, took testosterone and lived as a male for four years. And then she decided it wasn't right for her and transitioned um, back but to living as a female and stop taking testosterone, but she is left with a very masculine, like completely convincing masculine deep voice, which is difficult for her because it's such a potent signal of uh, masculinity. But she was able to describe the sexual and emotional changes um, very clearly because one of the things she said is when she took testosterone, yes, she got a mood boost, which is consistent with some of the literature, um, that it does give a mood boost, seems to increase confidence, dampened emotional expression pretty seriously, but increased libido in the same way that was that Griffin Hansberry described. That, I should say, what Griffin Hansberry described was really during the intense sort of adolescent-like phase. It That does mellow out with time. It doesn't stay quite so intense. But so um, Stella went through that and... Um, and then transitioned back and was able to describe that, um, the intensity of that experience and what it was like to look like a man and live as a man and have those sexual feelings and basically stop crying and just become much more uh, sexual. Her orgasms changed in a way that's consistent with the um, many people's experiences, which is that the female, female orgasm and a lot, I didn't appreciate this before. I just took my 
female <laughs> orgasm for granted that it's sort of a full body, uh, relatively long experience relative to the male orgasm. So when she transitioned, she found that she had a much more urgent need for sex or for a release and her orgasms became more acute and centered on the genitals um, and short, sort of focused in one area, but more intense, but shorter lived. And that explains a lot, I think, about sex differences and sexuality when there's sometimes conflict around intimacy, where the man is kind of like, okay, that's it, it's done. <laughs> and the, the woman is like luxuriating in the afterglow and that can feel personal and, you know, potentially insulting. So there needs to be a conversation there. So mm -hmm. once you understand what it's like for the other person, hopefully that can open up avenues for repair. And finally, I do want to touch on the Coolidge effect. You may you open that chapter up with a very funny joke. And, um... <laughs> it's not really that funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried it. Also, you have a recipe for chocolate-covered bacon that I'm interested in. I hope you post that sometime <laughs> online. But the Coolidge right. effect, yes, this is, uh, you open up the chapter with a joke, and I didn't realize the, uh, the origin of, the, of right. the Coolidge effect. Would you like to touch on that just briefly? Oh, God, I'll try. I'm not a good joke teller, um, obviously, because I'm a woman. Sorry, that's a joke. That's a big joke. Um, there's a stereotype that women can't tell jokes. And there's plenty of hysterical female comedians, I should say. Um, okay, so the Coolidge effect is, I just have to describe it because I can't do justice to the, to the joke there. Um, President, the story goes that President Calvin Coolidge and his wife were touring a farm and they were taken on separate tours. And uh, I'm not, I, you know what? I cannot donate. I can't even do it. I just have, sorry. I just have to explain what the Coolidge effect is. Okay. Um, That's fine. Is that all right? I have to review. Yeah, we're wrapping it up. And I think it's a very important lesson. Yeah. Okay. So the Coolidge effect is present across lots of different um, species. It's particularly pronounced or at least measured in some mammalian species. It's well documented in rodents and humans and other animals. But you can see very clearly, um, and obviously, sorry, it's also uh, well documented in uh, roosters and hens. And the idea is that the male um, can become sexually uh, sort of re-excited, sexually reinvigorated after having sex with a female and sort of becoming sexually exhausted and not wanting to mate with that female anymore. He can become reinvigorated when um, introduced to a novel female. So it can look like he's incapable of mating, he has no sexual interest, he can't ejaculate anymore. But if he's presented with a novel female, boom, he comes back online kind of, and he looks very sexually interested and he wants to mate, he's capable of mating, he's capable of ejaculation, but only with a female that he has not mated with previously. And the neurochemically what's going on is the novel female is causing a dopamine increase, which increases his motivation and reward. Uh, but he's only motivated and rewarded if there's a new female, because that makes sense from a evolutionary reproductive perspective, that he can increase his reproductive success with new partners, uh, because he has a chance of 
basically uh, impregnating each of them. Whereas if a female mates with a male and she's gotten pregnant, it's not going to really do her any reproductive good and might in fact cause her uh, reproductive harm if she's a human and her partner discovers that she has had extra pair sex, you know, he might not then want to invest in her offspring because he can't be sure that it's his. Um, so the idea is that testosterone, and it's, this has been shown pretty clearly, that testosterone upregulates that dopamine response um, in males in the presence of novel females, where they get motivated and excited by a new female, by sex, the idea of sex with a new female, um, rather than the female that they might be paired with or have recently mated with. So it kind of helps to explain to some degree what's going on neurochemically and from a reproductive evolutionary point of view and helping to explain these differences in mating strategies and reproductive strategies where males, in fact, all over the world do seek out a higher number of mates than females do. Uh, and that's, I should say, men seek out more than women. And that's very clear um, pretty much in every culture studied and also libidos uh, in men tend to be higher. That, of course, doesn't mean that there aren't females who want a lot of, sex, lot of sexual partners or who like love sex and has, have very high libidos. This is, these are differences on average. Mm -hmm. This is a great gift to your son, Griffin. I really loved how you personalized oh, the book. Thank you. Yeah, it really is for him. I want him to feel good about being a boy and a man. I want him to embrace that and to be a good guy. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, I think this is a gift to us men too. In uh, <clears throat> in many respects, that conversation with Joe was that was pretty special to touch him like that and to open up personally was very unique. I th I was moved by that myself. So I've gotten a lot of emails from men saying how much they appreciated it, how much it meant to them to see someone like him. I'm mm -hmm. getting teary now talking about it, to see someone like him show such raw emotions so yeah. freely and they really appreciated that and uh no he was great he really means well he's trying to do the right thing in the world he's a good guy yeah and maybe he'll actually listen to the audiobook when that comes out <laughs> <laughs> we'll see he's got all he's very busy it's unbelievable how much he has going on we really appreciate it thanks so much and looking forward thanks so to, much uh, greg Take to seeing care. the release of this book cheers okay bye-bye and thank you for listening to the Portland Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Day. If you'd like to contact me directly, you can reach me at greg at pdxpodcast.com. We'll be back with a brand new episode very shortly. See you then.